because I've shared it here about losing my first wife many years ago. And um, I wasn't very old at the time. But uh, Judy and I, my first wife, we knew Nancy. And so Nancy and I worked together. And so we, uh, we used to pray for her. She was, we were in dialogue about who Christ was, and she was trying to figure all that out. And so after Judy went to be with the Lord, Nancy and I kept talking about the Lord, and she came to know Christ, and uh, we fell in love. And so I sat down courageously, because I was really nervous, to, with one of the pastors in our church to uh, tell him that I was dating Nancy. Of course, he was pretty excited about it. And um, when we decided to get engaged, he said, you need to make sure you tell the senior pastor. And so I sat down with our senior pastor. I won't ever forget it because they were doing construction in the offices. And you know those hanging, low-hanging ceilings that they put in? Well, they were all gone. So you can hear from office to office. And so I'm talking, and I'm a little nervous about telling him that I'm dating Nancy. And all of a sudden, I hear, telling. <laughs> and, uh, and Kent, our senior pastor, kind of looked around like, what's that all about? And I keep talking, avoiding it. A couple minutes later, I hear, telling. <laughs> so I kept talking, and a couple minutes later, I hear the third time, if you don't, I will. <laughs> One of my favorite pastors my entire life, Jim and Barb DeMoller, are sitting right here. They were with me when Judy died. I was 22 when I met them. They were there when I preached my first sermon, and by God's grace, there's no recording of it. Not even in the libraries in heaven. It was that bad. God didn't keep it. So I just wanted to honor them because they have, they go back a long ways and I just love them dearly and they're here. Well, let's, uh, as is our practice, let's stop and pray. Uh, we need to pray, for, continue to pray for Don and Patty. It's good to see you in the back. Uh, Don is, as you know, uh, no secret, fighting cancer. And so we need to continue to pray. And I've heard from several of you that uh, Father Michael is actually coming back into the community in November to take over the congregation again. And we've been praying for him for quite a while and very grateful for what God has done uh, to arrest his cancer because our community needs him. So let's uh, stop and pray for these men. And uh, for others of you that I don't even know if you're sick or not, we will pray for you as well. Father, we are grateful, Lord, for uh, your answering our prayer with Father Michael that he would be back in our own community. Lord, I, uh, I am grateful. Our church is grateful. Thank you, for, uh, thank you for listening to us and answering our prayer the, the way we've asked you to because um, we know that in your goodness you could choose other ways. And um, uh, we feel strongly our community needs him and his own flock needs him, so thanks for restoring him back to ministry. And Father, we do lift up Don and Patty to you, one of our own, Lord, who is uh, now fighting cancer. And Lord, uh, we pray that, as we pray all regularly, that you would just do your thing and take care of this cancer. Uh, however you choose, whether it's through chemo or just by touching him personally, that's okay with us. We just want you to take care of the cancer because we need them here in our own flock. And Father, for others in our congregation who are sick, I know there's a list in our bulletin and there's even more that aren't on there. I just pray that you would continue to be a God that moves in our midst, a God that uh, heals our people, a, a God that teaches us joy uh, in the midst of suffering. Uh, be with them. Show your grace to them, Lord, in new and fresh ways. Lord, we all are very aware that uh, we could wake up and one day our life would be in, uh, we would be in struggles and 
be suffering and would need your grace. So we pray for those who need your grace. And Father, I continue to pray for our president and our government. We just lift him up to you at all levels, from the president all the way down to our local mayors here and city council members, that you would give them wisdom, Father, to, uh, to lead us well as a, as a people, as a culture. Father, I pray for the upcoming elections. Help us, to, um, help us to remember to stay focused on you and our faith. Lord, we will, with honor, we will go vote our conscience. Thank you for the freedom to do that. But at the same time, we look to you in faith. Use this election, Lord, somehow to uh, return the hearts of our nation, those that have wandered away from you, to turn their hearts to you and uh, show your grace to us. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, today we start a new series. Um, we just finished one, Making Sense of Scripture. We're starting a new one. We're going to be looking at Philippians. And the name of the uh, series, we've called it Standing Together and Making the Case for Joy. And what does this look like? But I actually want to do a couple of things in Philippians. I want to take the last series, the four principles we talked about, and I want to begin to look at how to bring them into a study of Philippians so that we get more practice as a church figuring this out. In the last series, you remember we were asking the question, how do you apply Scripture? Interpreting the Scriptures is often really not the biggest challenge. Uh, I've said several times, if you gave me three minutes, I could convince you that Paul clearly taught that women should wear uh, some symbol of authority, submission on their heads. What I can't convince you of is whether we should do that today. And so we've been asking the question, how do you decide, how do we decide as a church to do that? The elders asked me to present that to you in light of our discussion of the role of women. So four principles, you may remember them. Principle number one is when does our interpretation of Scripture uh, does it bring God's love out to this broken world? That's the nature of the gospel. He loves this whole creation. He loves every person in it. And short of violating your free will, he'll do whatever it takes to get their attention. And so does our, the way we decide to apply these scriptures, does it result in bringing out God's love to this world? That's what we refer, call when we, uh, that's what we're talking about when we call it the mission of God. God's mission is to reach out to this whole world with his love. The second principle is, does our interpretation and the practice that we develop here within our own church, does it lead to redemption or bringing out this uh, scripture to the world in a redemptive or a healthy way, in a life-changing way? Remember the basic definition of redemption. You get yourself in trouble. Maybe you're in financial trouble. Somebody comes along and rescues you. That's the basic meaning of redemption. So when we bring the principles of Scripture out, do we do it in a way that's redemptive, in a way that's healthy to the culture around us? Uh, if not, then we, we should rethink our application and what we do with it. So an example of the first one is our elders could come to the conclusion that Paul clearly taught slavery, which he did. So did Peter. And so we could decide that, well, we need to bring slavery back. Oh, you'd all laugh at us. That's absurd. Of course it's absurd. That is not bringing the love of God out to a broken world, is it? So we would never do that. An example of the second one is we may decide, looking at the passages on gold jewelry and the braiding of the hair and that sort of stuff, that uh, what's really behind that is God wants us to learn to live together in unity and to put each other first um, and so we should bring back the braiding of the hair, not allowing it, and gold jewelry. And you'd think that was absurd. How in the world is that healthy within our own culture? That wouldn't work either. 
So that was the second principle. Maybe remember, I said, in other parts of the world, those principles actually still apply. When I teach in India, the wearing of gold jewelry tells each other which caste they belong to. And so it's very important, those principles in that context, but not in our context. So once we've made the decision to do that, the third principle that we talked about, we developed, was the principle of freedom. Is our interpretation and practice in conformity with the freedoms established by the Bible? We let the Bible itself decide that. So when you look at Genesis and you go all the way to the other end to Revelation, when you see principles that are consistent, that's our line in the sand. We don't deviate from that. Sexual morality is one of those. We looked at that. Adultery is wrong in every part of the Bible. It's not like it's okay in Greece, but not okay in Asia Minor. Nope, it's always wrong. Now, as the Bible unfolds, it becomes clear what adultery is because they had double standards back in the Old Testament of what adultery was. And so Christ, Jesus, and Peter and Paul began to correct all that, but adultery is always wrong, and we won't deviate from that. Uh, divorce is always wrong. We won't deviate from that. Now, we gave a caveat that we will always show grace because that's what the Bible does. But we're not going to move the line. That's not what we're going to do. Now, in contrast to that, there's lots of other things where we have all kinds of freedom. Paul says to the Corinthians that uh, I want the young widows to remain single, 1 Corinthians 7. But then he said to 1 Timothy, to Timothy, who's in Ephesus, I think the young widows should remarry. So you have two different commands given to two different culture, two different cultures, two different ethnic groups. So there we have freedom. So where the Bible gives us freedom, let's take advantage of it. Okay, does that mean we can do whatever we want? No, we go back to the first two principles. Does it bring the love of God out to this broken world in a way that's healthy and redemptive? Then the fourth principle is, does our interpretation lead to a flourishing community right here? If our own community is defined by strife, anger, jealousy, division, whatever we, it, it is that we don't want it to be defined by, then we lose our voice in the world. So it's absolutely critical that our interpretation lead us right here to a healthy, flourishing culture because that's what will attract the world. It will. And we said, there's nothing wrong with wives submitting to husbands. That's a beautiful thing. Nothing wrong with husbands sacrificing for their wives. My goodness, go talk to your friends out there whose marriages don't know what that's about. They would love to have that. This is wonderful. There's nothing wrong with elders who serve in the background and love you and sacrifice for you. That's a great thing. There's nothing wrong with you honoring the elders. Those are all the principles when we put them together. And people in the world look and say, how do you do that? How does that happen? So we're going to take a look at Philippians, and we're going to use these four principles to kind of guide us. So today we're going to do kind of a historical background, which often sounds boring, but what I want to do is surface some of these principles in the middle of that. In order to take a look at Philippians, which will be the next four weeks, we first need to look at the background so we can begin to answer these questions. So let me start with this. Paul's letter to the Philippian Christians is filled with warmth, joy, deep affection, when you read the, if you haven't read Philippians, I'd encourage you to read it. It's only four chapters. It's easy to read. Read it several times over the next few weeks. And notice the warmth, his tone, his love for these people. It's, he's deeply in love with them. His love for them is obvious. And yet, in the middle of all of that, he's concerned to help them with some problems that have arisen. Problems that actually relate to us. 
One is there is rivalry and gossip among the leaders. Now, that's not a problem we struggle with. We have great leadership here. Our staff and elders, we work so well together. I just love our staff and elders, every one of them. But I want you to see how he addresses this among the leaders in a church that where they do struggle with that. Another problem is that there's hostility and skepticism in their own culture, and that's challenging their faith. Well, we live with that, don't we? Only 7% of our county is Protestant. Uh, that means you walk into any store, restaurant, coffee shop, bar, I don't care where you are. You can turn in four directions and run into people that don't believe in Christ and are often hostile. I know, I have lots of conversations with them. Third thing is that there are these uh, impressive teachers, teachers who like to kind of put their credentials out there, who are promoting a spirituality that doesn't lead to faithfulness. What do you do with that when you have somebody that comes into your own mix that, that is a good teacher that promotes something different? As Paul addresses these concerns, we will learn how to embody the gospel. We will learn by his examples with them how to embody the gospel in our own group so that this gospel makes it out to these people out here, so that they can see God's grace in action with us, and they can hear about it by our love for them. That's what we're going to see. Everywhere he addresses these problems, that's the end result. So here's the historical setting of, uh, and its impact on Paul's writings. Um, Philippi was named after Philip II, king of Macedon, he fortified the city in 356 B.C. So we're talking almost 400 years before Paul's there. So it has a long and rich history. The city does. After Mark Antony and Octavian defeated Brutus and Cassius, they were the two who assassinated Julius Caesar in 42 B.C. So now we've jumped forward 300 years. After Mark Antony and Octavian defeated them, Philippi became a Roman colony and became the home for discharged army veterans. So as they left the army, they would move them there, and give, they gave them land, and they gave them citizenship. Octavian eventually called Mark Antony a traitor. He challenged him for some of the things that he had done, and they went into war, and there was a civil war. He, be, he defeated him at the Battle of Atrium in 31 B.C. and became Caesar Augustus in 27. So this is just before the time of Christ. This is the world that Christ is born into, that Paul's going to be born into. So he's now Caesar Augustus. So Octavian, who's now Caesar Augustus, he restores the peace and security of the whole region, the empire, after the Civil War, because the Civil War caused all kinds of distress, economic, all kinds of things. And so by, by creating this peace and security, he brought around social and economic recovery and and allowed the people to rest. That became known as the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. He was welcomed into the city of Philippi and called a savior. He was the emperor, he's called a savior. So as a result of, of the prominence given to the city, the Roman aristocracy in Philippi began to flourish. In other words, Philippi got put on the map as an important city, a leading city, became important. Roman architecture became the standard. Since the city was a Roman colony, the, the citizens all enjoyed the privileges and rights of Roman citizenship. For example, they were exempt from taxes. I kind of like that law. I'm going to write my congressman. I'm a citizen. I should get exempt from taxes. That's they were also governed under Roman law. 
that becomes important because they received rights as Roman citizens under law that non-citizens did not have. So by the time of Paul, Roman arches, bathhouses, forums, temples, they dominated the city. If you ever get a chance to go to any of these cities, you'll see what that looks like. There were temples to the Greek gods, the Phrygian gods, the Egyptian gods, but the imperial cult was the most prominent religion. The city's religious life centered on the worship of the emperor. That's what we mean by imperial cult. You see, the emperor was a representative of the gods to the world around them, and he was himself a god. Withdrawal from participation in the imperial cult was viewed as subversive and rebellious and was illegal. And so this is the background. So why is this all important? Well, when we look at principle number two, bringing out uh, our, our interpretation of Scripture into this broken world, it's important that we do it in a way that's healthy. And the only way we can figure that out is to know our own culture. We looked at the Bible itself and said, look at how the Bible re- interacts with culture on a regular basis in such a way as to bring the truth to culture to bear. And uh, the, be- the more we understand about the ancient culture, the more we can see how God is redemptive. If you don't understand the culture of the ancient world, you don't understand the passages on rape and genocide and all those terrible, heinous things. We've talked about that. So now let me give you Paul's side of the story. Paul visited Philippi in AD 49. The story is found in Acts 16. And so if you want to follow along, I'm going to be reading from Acts 16. Uh, in this passage, we begin to see some of these principles at work. They start to surface. And uh, they're wonderful how it happens. Acts 16 is one of those stories that I'm glad I didn't go through it. Um, but at the same time, it does make me chuckle when I look at how Paul uh, responded. So Acts, the Acts account, the very first thing, confirms this detail that Philippi was a Roman colony. In Acts 16, um, starting in verse 12, 11, From Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and next day we went to Neapolis. From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony. That detail is very important for all the stuff that happens. And Philippi was also a leading city of the district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. So the very first thing Paul does is he begins to witness to Christ. He starts engaging people with this Messiah. On the Sabbath, verse 13, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. I'll come back to that. This is an important detail. One of those listening was a, a, widow, a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay with us at my house. And so she persuaded us, and they did. So Luke emphasizes that Paul's witness was to a group of women. By the way, this is Luke's pattern throughout Acts. He highlights women every step of the way throughout the book of Acts. The first convert was a woman. Paul's next convert was a young slave girl, another woman. Listen to the very next paragraph. Um, Once, verse 16, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. I bet so. I wish I had a crystal ball. 
So you follow Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the, the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said in the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, she left her. Um, the conversion of the slave girl brought about severe repercussions to her owners. They brought charges against Paul and Silas and were thrown into prison. Verse 19, when her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates, and they said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar. Now, here's the real charge. By advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Remember, if they stopped worshiping the emperor, that was illegal. We're not to do that. So the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. The magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. We looked at that actually a few weeks ago in culture, beaten with rods. If we did this, we'd all be in jail. Although I want to sometimes with some of you. No, I'm just kidding. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. So... The third convert is a jailer and his family. They come to faith in Christ. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. And I remember they'd just been beaten with a rod. Okay, I'm sure they're not very comfortable, but they're singing praises. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake um, <clears throat> that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open. Everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, saw... When he saw the prison doors open, he drew a sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. Because here's the basic rule. You're in charge of the prisoners. You lose one, we take your life. Life for life. That's motivation not to lose a prisoner. Trust me. And so he's about to take his own life. But Paul shouts out, don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights and he rushed in. Uh, and trembling before Paul and Silas, he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What a great question. Nobody would have stayed around if the prison doors fell open. These men are different. They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved, you and your household. It's that simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others at the house. And they took him and they baptized him, uh, his entire household. So the initial converts of this church were all Gentile believers, Lydia and her family, a young slave girl, the jailer and his family. So then the final step in this story is Paul uses his Roman citizenship for the purpose of the ministry. So when it was daylight, verse 35, the magistrate sent a, uh, oh, let me remember, they think he's in jail. They don't know that he's uh, gotten out or anything. So they take, uh, they send the magistrate's, Send the officers to the jailers, and they say, release those men. So the jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be refused. You're free to go. Leave in, live, in, live in peace. Leave in peace. But Paul says to the officers, hmm, they beat us publicly without even a trial, even though we are Roman citizens. That's a problem. Because under the Roman law, now the Roman magistrates would lose their lives. You weren't allowed to do that to Roman citizens. 
See the privilege of being a Roman citizen? So Paul didn't say a word. He just stuck that card in his back pocket and he pulled it out when he needed it. They beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and they threw us into prison, and now they want to get rid of us quietly? I love it. Let them come themselves and escort us out. You can imagine the trauma of the magistrates. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. I bet they were. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them, probably begging them, to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went back to Lydia's house where they met with brothers and sisters and they encouraged them. Then they left. So they actually honored the leaders of the city, but first they went to encourage the believers. And they made a statement at the same time. Come escort us out yourself. What a way to show forgiveness. I'm not going to turn you in. I'm not going to push my rights so far. All right. From this account, we learn several things. Number one, the suffering of Paul and Silas is emphasized. That's the core of the story. Paul uses this as an example in Philippians. We're going to look at this in more detail when we get in there, but I want to read you the, the passage. Philippians 1.27, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you're standing firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. That's where we get the phrase, standing together. This is why we called it this. With, don't be frightened in any way by those who oppose you, because this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, that you know the true God. And they, but that you will be saved in that by God. For to you it has been granted. This is a very fascinating term. It's the verb form for the word grace, which we don't have in modern English. We used to have it in Old English. I graced you with my presence. But we don't have it in modern English. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Suffering is an example of God's grace. And we'll talk more about that later. We've talked about it many times over the years, but we'll talk more when we get into Philippians. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw that I had. See, he's connecting their world with his own world. They were there. They saw the struggle. They saw it. So he uses this as an example for the Philippians. This becomes one of the themes of the book. The suffering of believers in Christ leads to a strong and powerful witness for Christ. You know why? Because suffering is one of those few places we connect with the world. We share that language in common. They know what it's like to be abused by bosses. They know what it's like to have spouses cheat on them and leave. They know what it's like to have kids struggle with drugs. You name it. They know what it's like to be bankrupt. Suffering is a language that we share. What they don't understand is grace. And that's where we model it. So the second principle, Luke demonstrates that women are held in very high regard for Paul. Lydia invited Paul to stay at her house. We read that in Acts 16. She was the head of her household. Uh, she wouldn't have been mentioned. She was obviously a woman of financial means to have a house large enough for the gathering of believers. That says something about how important she was. Paul's acceptance of her hospitality confirmed her, uh, her socially prominent position in the church. So we see Paul lifting up this woman. At the end of Philippians, 
uh, we'll get there, Philippians 4, he talks about Euodia and Syntyche, two other women who are obviously fighting. There's dissension there. They were significant leaders of the church as well, alongside of Clement. His mention of them by name and their division reveals their importance. So the role of these women as leaders in the church would have been socially acceptable in Philippi at this time. This is a part of the world where it would have been okay. Rather than rejecting their position as leaders, Paul works to reconcile them. That's more important. Remember when we talked about the, the variation in Scripture on the way women are treated? That's what led our elders to say we have freedom in this area. Remember that? And this is one of those examples. This reflect, reflects principle number three, where, where Paul has freedom in this part of the world. So he doesn't put any language in here about restricting women. No, he's saying, women, get your act together. You two are fighting in the church. You're leaders in the church. Cut it out. So that's an example. Next thing we learn is that Paul was courageous to bring the gospel to a pagan world dominated by the imperial cult. The charge against Paul and Silas demonstrates a strong aversion to the Christian message. They're being charged with sedition, not in following the imperial cult. The accusers begin raising the question of the illegitimacy of the Christian faith. Their culture was hostile to Christianity, in other words. They didn't like this. So Paul taught the true message of God's love. He raises citizenship in heaven above the imperial cult and Roman citizenship. In fact, when we get to Romans 3, he's going to say, our citizenship is in heaven. There's a higher principle at work. He uses the title given to the emperor. The emperor was called Lord and Savior. It's very common in the first century world. He uses those two phrases in Philippians 2 to talk about Jesus. He talks about true Christian love means we sacrifice for others. We don't demand our rights. That's in Philippians 2. We're going to see all this. And finally, in contrast to the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana, in Philippians 4, he promises a true peace, a peace of God. A peace of God which will guard your hearts and your minds. What he's beginning to do is take these secular ideas and tell us the truth about a living God. We've asked the question, is your faith in God or in the fact that we have the most powerful military in the world? It ought to be in God. This year, this election might be an odd one to ask this question, but is your faith in the electoral process? <laughs> or is it in faith in God? These are all points that if we're not careful, will divide us as a church. If we stay focused, as Paul does. But in the process, what he's doing is he's undermining and he's overturning sinful and broken cultural values. He's bringing the truth of the Christian message out into the culture in a way that um, reflects the greatness of God. It's redemptive and it's healthy. And he's going to say in Philippians 1, the whole palace guard has heard the story of Christ. The whole palace guard. It also reflects principle number three, where we have freedom, let's take advantage of it, and that while he was comfortable with women in leadership, the same as we are, he was not willing to give in on the truth of the gospel. That's a line in the sand. We're not going to cross that line. I am Trinitarian. I believe in the risen Lord Jesus. That won't change. So we see these principles start to surface right there. Okay. All of those principles we see just in looking at the history. 
Wait till we get into the book and you see all those principles at work. Paul was very concerned. Principle number one, does our interpretation bring the love of Christ out to a broken world? Principle number two, does it do it in a healthy way, a redemptive way? Principle number three, where the Bible gives us freedom, let's take advantage of it in keeping with principle number one and two. And where the Bible draws in the line in the sand, let's draw a line in the sand. And principle number four, is our own house in order? Are we flourishing right here? If not, we might as well give it up now. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your kind and generous spirit and heart to us. Thank you for um, teaching us how to live wisely in a world that doesn't know you and doesn't understand you. In a world that, uh, that pretty much only knows suffering and brokenness, exhaustion, loss, uh, suffering. That's what they know. And Lord, what an opportunity we have to reflect to them the truth about your son Jesus. Thank you for that. Help us to have a healthy church here, Lord, to continue to grow within our own fellowship here, love and generosity, sacrifice, all the principles we hold dear. Thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. To invite the ushers to come forward and take the offering and, and we'll say thank you for your generosity. You're the ones that make it possible for us to do all the things we do. Thanks. So during the offertory today, what we're going to do, because more than music, part of why we invited them to come back up and to join us for this weekend is they're getting ready to take off on a large and amazing adventure. You guys can start anytime. We won't, we won't stop you from that. But just so that you're aware, Dave, I asked Dave if he would tell us a couple of details about their trip to India. They're leaving shortly. When do you leave, Dave? Ten days from now. Okay, so we're gaining on it. I said, are you sure you can fit this in <laughs> to come up to, to Dylan? And actually, they've figured it out. But now, where are you going in India? Will we recognize you? Now, tell us a little bit about who you will be ministering to and with. Tell us about that. Okay, Caitlin. Oh, so it's no longer more than music. It's, it's Caitlin's, Caitlin's band, band. Uh, Caitlin and the Traveling. 
I like that. <laughs> now, here's the question I have as a pastor and someone who's been on a number of mission trips. How does, I've heard you use the phrase musicianary, which is a combination of using mis- music and being a missionary. How do you use music as a tool while you're in India? something so we just wanted you to know about their mission that is coming up if you'd like to participate after the service caitlin will be out at the uh, welcome center they have some cds and things but also if you'd even like to find out a little bit more and be a part and participate you have that opportunity and we wanted to let you know that jim why don't you come and introduce and, and take us into the time of of communion it's not disconnected they're not, not completely separate from each other at all because it's about our our recognition of the gifts that Christ has given to us. These wonderful people recognize their gifts that they've been given. They use those to accomplish God's mission in this world. And that's exactly what Jesus did. We're going to remember that now. If you have been on a mission trip of any kind, raise your hand. Wow. I hope you appreciate our commitment to that. It's a value. In fact, what's the opening words of our mission statement? Rest on the glass. Going passionately. That's what we're about. In preparation for communion, listen to these words. Now that you understand the historical context and how hostile the community was to the Christians in Philippi, this is out of Philippians, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, but he took on the form of a slave, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You think a broken world would, would gravitate toward people that are that sacrificial? That are willing to put each other first to the point of dying for people? Would that attract the world? It attracted me many years ago. I'm going to give you just a few seconds just to pause and... Uh, Thank the Lord for his sacrifice for us. In preparation for communion, I'd like to invite some of you to come up and get ready to serve us the bread and the cup 
And uh, some others of you, come on up and be willing to pray. Uh, we love to pray with people. Uh, for those of you that are visitors, we close our service each week with communion where we celebrate together the work of Christ on the cross. So come on up, need a couple more. And uh, it's something we do together. We don't have a particular procedure that we follow. I know we have so many traditions represented here. If you want to take the elements here, you can. If you want to kneel at the cross, foot of the cross, you're welcome to do that. If you want to take it back and meditate uh, at your seats, you're welcome to that as well. When you come up, come up and uh, stop with one of us and pray. You know the stories? The stories themselves represent some of our principles. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus himself found himself in a hostile environment, and he was still willing to live out his faith in real ways. On the night he was betrayed, he took the bread, and he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When you come forward, someone's going to say, this is the body of Christ given for you, each one of you. After supper, he took the cup and said, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. I love that phrase. It occurs both times. I didn't forget you. That's what Emmanuel means, God with us. He remembered his promise he came back for, so don't forget him. Right? So when you come forward, somebody will say, the blood of Christ shed for you. Every time we do this, we proclaim his death. We proclaim our faith. And so if, if that's our confession as a church, and if you would like to join us in our confession, we welcome you to come forward to receive communion. Father, thank you for, again, for sending your son. Jesus, thank you. There's no way we could ever say thank you good enough. So our only commitment is uh, by means of your grace, we commit to living out our faith in real ways as a way of saying thank you. In your name we pray, amen. Come and uh, participate in communion.